0: We're in the middle of three weeks trying to help us understand some critical questions, sometimes questions that stand as a a barrier to belief. So there's some reasons why we tend to not believe. Last week we looked at the question, how can Jesus be the only way? So in the midst of all of the faiths, all of the beliefs that are in the world, how can Jesus be the singular one? You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Next week, we'll look at the question, if God is good and he's all-powerful, then why does evil exist in the world? A very common problem. Today, we're looking at the question, how can we know that the Bible is trustworthy? And these questions are important, maybe because you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and those things maybe serve as a little bit of an obstacle. Or it may be that you are a follower of Jesus, and these questions make you timid in sharing your faith. You start to have a conversation with someone about what you believe, and you're nervous that they're going to ask you one of these questions. And so our aim is to try and help you, and what should you say? How do we answer these important challenges? Last week, we learned about the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the only way that human beings can be reconciled to God, because he's the only one who stands in the gap between God's justice and our justification. This week, we're wrestling with the question of the Bible's trustworthiness, and this is important for two reasons. First, Christian faith requires belief in the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, you are not a Christian. If you don't believe the Bible, then you don't believe that grace comes by faith alone through Christ alone. So the Bible is essential for the Christian faith the second reason why this question is important is because the number of people in the United States who believe that the Bible is true is shrinking. There was a survey done recently by the Gallup organization and also with American Bible Society. It found that 74% of Americans believe that the Bible is a holy book, and yet only 24% of them believe that it's the literal word of God. If you're over the age of 50, you've You've watched this in your own lifetime. It may have been that when you went to school, that not only was the school they opened in prayer, but in some places around the country, people actually read the Bible. The fact remains that belief in the Bible is shrinking. In fact, that same poll would tell you that for the first time in American history, the number of people who would consider themselves to be skeptics outnumber those who would claim to actually believe the Bible. So this... Is an important question. If you're gonna believe that the gospel is true, then you have to believe the source. And so how do you know that the Bible is more than fake news? (laughs) That's the question. Peter wanted the people to whom he was writing to understand this because this is the last letter that he writes. He anticipates his death, and he wanted them to have some assurance that even after he dies, and even after all of the other apostolic witnesses die, that they still can have a sure faith. They can still know what they believe. In fact, if you have your Bible, look at 2 Peter 1 and verse 14. He says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me And then he says this, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter anticipates that he's going to die. He's anticipating that all of the other apostolic witnesses are going to die. The people actually saw the risen Christ, the people who were there on the holy mountain. And the question is, so what could these people then put their trust in? And his answer is they can trust the Bible. They can trust the scripture. So this morning what I want to do is to show you the argument from 1 Peter, or 2 Peter, chapter 1, show you three characteristics of the Bible, and then highlight some applications and help you understand why this matters. So first, we find that the Bible is beyond human reasoning. And by this I mean that the Bible is superior to human thought and reason, It doesn't mean that the Bible is unreasonable or that belief in the Bible is intellectually indefensible, but rather, and this is very important, it means that the Bible does not derive its source of authority based upon human reasoning or human thought. That the authority of the Bible doesn't come from human beings saying, oh, it's true or that makes sense. Let me show you this. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear the word myth, cleverly devised myths, in your kind of Western mindset, what do you think of? You think of stories that aren't true. Think of fables, Greek mythology, stories of Bigfoot, things of that sort. Maybe think of urban legends. I did a search under urban legends this last week, found some fascinating things. Like the urban legend, that daddy long legs are the most poisonous spider, but their fangs are so short, or the mouth is, that they can't bite anything. I thought that was true. Apparently it's an urban legend. So there's a number of them there that you, I would commend to you. You'd be surprised. Tell your kids, they'll be fascinated. Urban legends are stories told in a culture that they're told so often that they just are assumed to be true. That's what a myth is. Well, in Peter's day, myths were how they interpreted the world. Greek and Roman life was informed by these otherworldly stories about Zeus and Apollo, about Poseidon. And those myths served as a grid through which they interpreted the world, So when he says we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, he's not saying we didn't just tell you some fanciful stories. What he's saying is we're not using the normal way that people explain the world in our culture. He's saying that the message of Jesus' power and his coming are not just another creative way to make sense of the world. That's important in Peter's context, but let's bring it to ours in 2018. So in our Western context, We don't feel the weight of cleverly devised myths because mythology is not a part of the way that we interpret the world. So how do we interpret the world? How do 21st century Americans in the West interpret the world? You know, here's how I think we interpret the world. Here's how we know something is true. If it can be scientifically proven, it's true. If it can be rationalized or if it makes reasonable sense in our post-enlightenment realm then it's true or if a majority of people believe something to be true then it must be true you see in the same way that myths informed peter's day so this post-enlightenment post-modern thinking informs our own it's part of the air that we breathe when you go to the bible then There's this pressure to prove that the Bible is true by identifying how it fits with science, or that it has to be validated, making sense with human reason, or that it has to fit into a broader narrative within human culture. And then complicating the fact over the last 30 years is this, the advent of the internet age and the information powerhouse that's come with that such that every worldview all over the globe now is right here in front of you and the ability to compare worldviews isn't some fanciful thought, it's right there. And as a result, it's no wonder that so many people in their teens, 20s, and 30s struggle to believe the Bible. And yet... This thinking within our culture has beliefs that are underneath it. You know, don't you, that the scientific method and human reasoning have beliefs underneath the surface? When a person concludes that something is true because it is proven scientifically, and when they believe that nothing can be true unless it's proven scientifically, you need to know that's a belief. That's a fundamental belief. You see, a scientist must always assume that there's a natural cause because natural causes are the only kind of cause that its methodology can actually address. But you need to know underneath the scientific method, underneath scientific causes, is a belief that undergirds that methodology. Or let me put it this way, very simply. How can you naturally prove something supernatural? You can't. So to believe that something must be proven or that it must be entirely rational is itself a belief. Now some of you are immediately thinking, well, wait a second, are you saying then that we shouldn't worry about rationality? No, I'm not suggesting that science or human reason have no place in the discussion. I'm not advocating some sort of myopic view of Christianity, or philosophy, or asking you to be an irrational Christian. I'm merely suggesting that you need to recognize that what lies underneath the belief system of our world is, in fact, another belief system, and that there are limitations within human reasoning and even within our Western culture. You see, there's some of us who might think that the key to defend the Bible is to prove that it's scientifically accurate. Some people think that we could win more people to Christianity if we could verify that the Bible was historically reliable or that it was rationally acceptable. And while at one level those steps might be helpful, they fail to miss one very important point. And it's this that my problem and your problem is not our intellectual ignorance, even if we are ignorant. My problem is a will that does not will to do God's will. That's my problem. Or let me put it this way. Our problem is not just thinking the wrong thoughts, Our problem is that we are incapable of seeing what is actually true. And listen, this doesn't just happen in relationship to Christianity, this this is what humanity is all about. I'll give you you an example, a personal one. A couple years ago, I had an argument with my three sons about something. And I was, this was the one time that I was fully convinced that I was right. (laughs) And in the context of that argument, I was upset because I didn't feel like I won the argument and I felt like they were being ridiculous. They went up to my bedroom, sat on the edge of my bed and was was quite perturbed. My wife wisely came up to the bedroom and I said to her in protest, can you believe that? And she looked at me and she smiled and that's when I knew I was in trouble. And she said, actually, Mark, I kind of agree with them. And I was like, what? No! And in that moment, it wasn't just the emotions of now having my entire family against me and all of them wrong and me right. That wasn't the only thing that I was wrestling with. What I was wrestling with was the stunning thought that I actually could be wrong. And that had never crossed my mind. And the fact that it was possible freaked me out. (laughs) And they're still wrong. (laughs) No, they were right. So this happens all the time. This is part of the frailty and the fallenness of our humanity. Here's how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter four. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The idea is that humanity is blind to the truth of the gospel. In the Book of Romans, it says that we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It says that we become futile in our thinking in Romans 121, that we claim to be wise when the reality is we're fools, according to Romans 122, and that there is no one who understands, there's no one who seeks after God. And the Bible tells us that God Himself has to intervene in our rational and irrational blindness. When Peter, in one moment in the Gospels, says to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he nails it, Jesus says to him, Simon Bar Jonah, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's saying, What just came out of your mouth is a miracle. Like you said it, Peter, but that didn't come from you why Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, says this about his preaching and his ministry. When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, though it is not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So what am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. It takes a miracle for anyone to believe the Bible. And if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower because you believe the Bible, and you need to know, what that happened, that was a miracle that you believed. For you to believe that you're a sinner, for you to believe that someone named Jesus died, to put your trust in him and to hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe that, if you hear that, it's a miracle. That's what the Bible tells us. And while there's nothing wrong with talking about archaeological evidence, there is much Nothing wrong with talking about manuscript reliability. We have more evidence that Jesus existed than many people in history. Nothing wrong with talking about the rationality of the Bible. We have to realize that something else will be needed. So you need to know that if you're talking to someone who's not yet a believer and if they're a skeptic, you can give them all of these rational arguments, all of this historical evidence, all this reliability material, but at the end of the day, Human reason and scientific proofs cannot open blind eyes. The Bible is not based upon human reasoning. You don't come to faith because suddenly you say the Bible is true. It is that you believe that the Bible is true. It's a miracle. Second. Peter tells us that the Bible is better than even hearing God speak audibly. The second argument, frankly, is stunning, and I think Peter intends for it to be the case. He uses his own experience as as a backdrop to what he's about to say as a comparison between God speaking audibly and the Scriptures themselves. Peter was an eyewitness to the majesty of Christ. Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then in verse 17, he explains it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I was there. I was there. Where was he? What he's talking about here is the transfiguration. The moment when Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Christ no longer veiled by his humanity. They heard the affirmation of the Father. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Mark 9 records that moment. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What a moment. He sees Jesus, Elijah, Moses are there. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I love this moment, this I hope you read the Bible with a smile every once in a while, because Peter's like, "This is awesome. Let's stop a little K.O.A. and stay here for a long time, right?" <laughs> if you're like anti-camping and you need to know what happened in the mountain, I mean, Peter was saying, "Let's camp." But what's fascinating to me, verse six says this: "For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified." That's kind of funny that that's there. It's Mark, by the way, when he wrote his account, likely used Peter in terms of some reference material. I can only imagine that as Peter was telling him the story and he said, yes, I said, make some tense. But I didn't know what I was saying, right? So he puts that in there, right? I didn't know what I was saying. And a cloud, verse seven, overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What a moment. The combination of seeing the glory of Christ, the presence of Elijah and Moses, hears the affirmation of Christ, Peter, says, I saw this with my own eyes. I heard the voice of God speak. By the way, this is one of the ways that the Bible validates itself. It names names. After the Gospels were written, you could have gone back to real people named James or John. You could have gone back to real people in the account and said, did this happen? If this was a fabrication, then why name names? Because you could check it. Instead, keep it more generalized so you wouldn't know who to talk to. You no, know, you can fact-check the accounts of the gospel when they were, gospels when they were written. Now, after giving this level of detail, he does so not for the purpose of validating the Bible. He does so rather in order to set up another point. Verse 19: here it is. This is a very important verse. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed so here's a voice from heaven and peter says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as the lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts When he says prophetic word, he doesn't mean just prophecy like things that are going to be told in the future. He's referring to the full body of scripture. He's referring to the written word of God. And he says the written word of God is that which is more fully confirmed. Another translation renders this as made more sure. More sure than what? More sure than the voice of God speaking audibly. NIV renders this as something completely reliable. What Peter is saying is this that his eyewitness testimony, as important as it was, only confirmed what was already true, namely the prophetic word, the word of God. So his personal experience wasn't more reliable than the scriptures themselves. Rather, his personal experience only served to confirm what was already true. That's the point. This is really important because it determines how you view the Bible. There are some of you who might be tempted to think, man, if I saw this with my own eyes, I'd believe. If I heard a voice from heaven talking, then I would believe. Or I can't believe unless I see it for myself. And the argument underneath that is that you assume that your problem is merely evidential. Your problem is merely, if I had enough evidence, then I would believe. And the Bible says that's never our problem. Our problem is so much bigger than that. For example, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus tells the story of two men who died and they're in one paradise and one in torment and the one in torment, the rich man pleads for Abraham to send a prophet to his family to preach the message about the danger that they're in. And Abraham says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent, to which Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, let me warn you. There is nothing more that you're going to hear about heaven, hell, sin, and redemption than what's found right in this word. And if you think, if I just had this or that or this or that, and then I would believe, you'd make the mistake of so many who think that the problem is not simply a heart that doesn't see what should be seen. You see, hardness of heart against the word of God is not cured by a miraculous sign. The scriptures themselves are sufficient. They are more trustworthy than even a voice from heaven or someone returning from the dead. One commentator says this as though he was speaking on behalf of Peter. Listen to me. I was an eyewitness to the saving acts of God in history. I know that after Christ's death and resurrection, God will have no need to ever again perform these things in the presence of another generation. But remember, this in no way means that your faith is inferior to mine. We have both been given the prophetic promises of God. We can all read the words written down long ago. They are a more sure light than anything I ever saw and heard. Beloved, my seeing these things is important. Witnesses are essential, but God does not need to appear in the flesh every 40 or 50 years to enlighten us and confirm his love to us. Seeing isn't essential for believing, reading God's word is. That's the point. The Bible is God speaking. It is the very word of God. And then finally, we find that the Bible bears witness to itself. The final characteristic that affirms the trustworthiness of the Bible is its own claim to be the word of God. So the Bible claims to be the word of God. It claims to be inspired. The Bible claims to be a supernatural word. The Bible claims to be God's revelation to mankind. It claims to be God's speech. Look at verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, that first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So the first thing we see is that the teachings of the Bible, while they have been written by human beings, humans are not their source. That's what the Bible says. Verse 21, secondly, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So it's a reiteration of what's said in verse 20, that while human beings may have been the writers, they aren't the ultimate source of the scripture, and third and finally, we find the most important thing in verse 21, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so the word here is inspiration it means not something that is just that is just meaningful but in the same way that a wind drives a boat or a ferry transports cars something greater than the individual is at work stay with me here and follow this the Bible affirms therefore that it is the word of God it claims to be inspired And because God says that his word is true, then his word is true. If God says something is true, then it is, because when God says it, that makes it true. Therefore, it must be accepted as truth. So the argument is, God says that the Bible is true, therefore the Bible is true. Now some of you are like, wait a minute, isn't that circular reasoning? And at one level, yes it is but you need to know that everyone uses circular reasoning. Everyone presupposes something. In fact, even suggesting that the argument is circular presupposes the autonomy and the authority of human reason. It assumes that circular arguments are bad. (laughs) Skeptics of the Bible presuppose that we can appeal to reason in order to prove reason. So the reality is, is that Christians who believe that the Bible is true because God says it's true are doing nothing different than a skeptic who says, that's unreasonable because it doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) Same thing. John Piper says this, that the Bible is evidently God's word and it becomes clear that it's God's word when your eyes are opened to belief. Here's what he says. When God mercifully clears away the corroding effects of sin on the template of God's glory in our hearts, we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It fits. This is what we were made for. We know it. Light is its own confirmation just as natural light is its own confirmation. So question, when you woke up this morning and you walked outside and the sun was up How did you know it was day? Because it was obvious the sun was up. You walk into a room, turn the light on. How do you know the light's on? Because you can see. Light is its own confirmation. Piper continues, we know we are seeing reality. In the end, we do not deduce by logical inference that the eyes of our heads are seeing objects in the world. Sight is its own argument. Similarly, in the end, we do not deduce by logical inference that the eyes of our hearts are seeing the peculiar glory of God in his word. Sight is its own argument. In other words, because you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through the word, it is in and of itself its own argument. You might think, that's, that's crazy. We don't talk that way in other areas. Oh, yes, we do. I'll give you an example. Let's suppose you're meeting someone for coffee, a young man. He's He's in love with a woman that he wants to marry, but he's not sure if if this is the path that he should go down. So he asks you this question. How do you know when you're in love? You over your cup of coffee say to him, what you do is you use the scientific method. (laughs) Of course not, why do you laugh? Because you'd never use the scientific method. Or you'd say, What you do is you use rational philosophical reasoning. I use that. Oh, you use historical, credible, reliability testing. What do you say to a young man who says, "How do I know in love? How do I know I'm in love?" You know what I say? You know. If you don't, you're not. (laughs) Right? Have a nice day, right? So you walk out. That's it. That's all I got. Peace out. I'm done, right? Mic drop. It's over, man. Either you love her or you don't. You know or you don't. You can use all the evidence in the world, and at the end of the day, you know it. When it comes to the authority of the Bible, you can use all the evidence pointing to the historical evidence of Jesus, it's certainly there. You could use archaeological evidence, literary evidence, it's all there. Nothing wrong with any of that, but I would suggest to you at the end of the day, it's never going to be enough. The Bible is its own authority, and when you see it for what it is, you believe. And that, when it happens, is a miracle. I know I pray for some of you who are here today and are not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that even now that it happened, that something within you says, what, I believe this. I walked in an unbeliever right now, I believe this. So, now what? What do we do with this? Let me give you a few applications. The first is this. If you're not yet a believer, I wanna challenge you to read the Bible. I want to dare you to read the Gospel of John. And my challenge would be that you would read it with this lens, to ask yourself this question. As I'm reading this, what if this is actually true? And just see what happens to you if you read it that way. If you are a believer, let me remind you that the Bible is not just a book to be studied. The, the Bible is a window through which you see the glory of God. And can I just encourage you that if you want to believe in the trustworthiness of the Bible, you need to read it not as a textbook, but to read it as a portal. Read it as a a telescope that brings big, glorious things near and close. You read the Bible like a textbook. You read it like it's just some other sort of book that you're examining. It won't be long until your heart grows distant from this beautiful book. You must read it with the right lens. Secondly, I want to encourage you that you need to learn the cultural language. I mean by this, you, you need to know the evidence for the Bible. You need to know something about manuscripts. You need to know something about rational arguments. I know it seems odd that at the end of this sermon I'm saying this, but there are good books that I would commend to you that would be helpful, like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, The Case for Christ. You could watch the movie, The Case for Christ. It's a it's a helpful film. You can read Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, or Scott Saul's book, Jesus Outside the Lines. You should listen to people like Ravi Zacharias or Al Mohler. I'm not suggesting that you should be ignorant of these good arguments and apologetics. I'm simply saying that they're not the sole basis of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Third. I wanna encourage you to pray that God would open people's eyes. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says that the same God, listen to this, the same God who said, let there be light is the same God who shines the light of the glory of the gospel in the hearts of people. So have somebody at work that's got just hard arguments about the Bible, while you're researching all of the arguments, pray like crazy, God, open open their eyes, open their eyes, open their eyes, open their eyes. If a son or a daughter doesn't believe in the authority of the word, pray, God, open their eyes, open their eyes. Because at the end of the day, historical evidence, rational arguments don't raise the dead. God raises the dead by giving people new eyes to see. Fourth, I want to encourage you to share the word. And by this, I mean more than just evangelism. I mean to realize that there is something supernatural about the written word of God. And in our conversations with people, we would do well to do more than just give them biblical principles, but to literally share with them, here's what the Bible says, and quote it to them. Somebody over the weekend on Twitter asked me this question. It said, Mark, quoting scripture feels pointless when the person you're engaging doesn't believe it in the first place. That is so true and hard. I sympathize with this brother. What's my answer? My answer is, nobody believes the Bible when it's first quoted to them. And just because somebody doesn't believe it, doesn't mean you should stop quoting it. Instead, by the evidentiary expression of your own life. Let the Bible live in and through you such that your life and the beauty of the gospel has so changed you that the compelling witness is not necessarily the historical evidence of the Bible, but instead the way in which the scriptures have fundamentally changed your life. And when you share the word, you release something that's powerful beyond just your own arguments. And then finally, I want to encourage you to memorize the word. The greatest mechanism for sharing the specifics of the word and having it ready is by having it in your heart. So you have it as a ready arsenal to be able to share with people, a ready resource, but even more so, you'll find that by memorizing the word and getting it into your bones, something strange begins to happen. Not only do you have the ability to share the word, but your confidence in it increases. Suddenly, as you've gotten it into your bones, you feel its weight, you feel its application, you, you feel its power in a new way as you observe its effect. One thing I have found to be the case it is this that people who memorize the word have great confidence in the Bible's trustworthiness. So let me just say this you don't have to defend the Bible. Spurgeon said defending the Bible is like a man defending a lion. <laughs> He says our role is not to defend the lion, it's to unleash him. So unleash the word. Why? Well, I'll let scripture speak for itself. Here's why. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is God's word. It's true. And we just need to unleash it. Thanking him that in his kindness, when you see it and believe, it's because God has worked a miracle. Father, we thank you that you have, in eternity past, ordained this word for us, and that you've given dead hearts, life, to see and to believe. And Lord, we pray today that there might be people who would believe, just even by the hearing of the word, let the word do its work. God, make us a people receptive to the authoritative, trustworthy scriptures. Make us a people confident in the inspired text. We love your word and we love how we can see you, Jesus, through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.